welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. I'm here with Fanula Austin, author of Bronte's Mistress, a forthcoming historical novel published by Atria Books. I'm so happy to have you here, Fanola, and I read your wonderful book, and I have so many questions. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm so thrilled. So let's start with you, a little bit about you. I just learned this second, literally minutes ago, that you're actually Irish, so tell me how you came upon, you know, with that background and you went to Oxford? Yeah, so I'm about as Irish as the Brontes were, or maybe a little bit more. So that's another point of connection between me and the famous Bronte family. So my dad is Northern Irish. He grew up in Belfast. My mother's English, though half Welsh. So let's say half English, half Welsh. They met in Wales. I was born in England, and we moved to Northern Ireland when I was five. So I'm from everywhere in the UK, apart from Scotland, essentially. But I did spend most of my childhood in County Antrim in Northern Ireland. So not that far from where the Reverend Patrick Bronte grew up. When I went to university, as you mentioned, I, I did go back to England. I went to the University of Oxford. And there I studied classics in English, so Latin and English literature, and then later I did a master's there in 19th century literature or long 19th century. So claiming 1800 to 1914. And of course, the Brontes are a key part of that period. They've been among my most loved novelists since I was a child. I think Jane Eyre was the very first Bronte novel I read. And I, I think it was actually read to me. It was a novel that my mother read to us in the evening. But I just had this love of 19th century literature that really developed from then. And Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens were probably my first two Victorian novelists that I enjoyed. Well, I, I can say I can really see those influences in your book. I was really struck by the voice and by the way you entered Mrs. Robinson, who was the mistress of Branwell Bronte the way you really entered her and sort of got into her. And it, there was something very gothic about the whole thing. So my first question to you is, how did you land on telling her story? And with all of this, you know, about the Brontes and the history and everything, what led you to her? Yeah, so I grew up writing stories. I think I made my first book before I'd even gone to school. I, I illustrated it and demanded that my mother add the text. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I grew up writing, um, telling stories to my poor younger sister, writing plays. But I think, and maybe a lot of young writers feel this, I knew I wanted to write, but I, I didn't really have much to say. So I was always jumping from idea to idea and getting seduced by something new. In my early 20s, I, I did write another novel, was historical fiction, was set in the 19th century, because that's the period I knew best from my master's degree, but wasn't based on real people. It was entirely fictitious. It was really me trying to write my own Victorian sensation novel, because I've been enjoying so many by Wilkie Collins and Mary Elizabeth Braddon, who I wrote my dissertation on. 
so that novel, I, I took out to agents. I got more serious about it as I went on. And while it was out in the query trenches, I knew that all the advice told me I had to start working on something new, but I just didn't for a while. I, you know, was holding onto that dream and, you know, it wasn't silence. I got some full requests and partial requests and I still really believed it would be the one. I'd read all that advice that said, you know, the first novel you write is probably not the first one you're going to get published if you're going a traditional route. But I, I was holding on to that dream that I would be the exception. So I actually came across Lydia Robinson and her story, not deliberately. It wasn't like I set out to write a book about the Brontes and then looked what's going to be my hook. I was reading the Elizabeth Gaskell biography, The Life of Charlotte Bronte, just for fun. And the story behind that is I moved um, to the U.S. and to New York City in 2014. And when I came, I initially thought I would just be here for a year and then would probably go back to Europe or, or go to Asia for my day job. But I fell in love with New York. And after two years of living here, I decided that I wanted to be here on a more permanent basis. And so I shipped my books across the Atlantic. So I had all these books that I'd owned at Oxford, a lot of them secondhand, including this Life of Charlotte Bronte by Mrs. Gaskell. And the deal I made with myself, because it's not cheap to be shipping things across the ocean, was that any books that I got delivered here that I hadn't actually read, I would sit down and read. So I was reading the biography for fun. I, I knew quite a lot about the Brontes. I had read other biographies, but I'd never read this seminal one, the first one. And when I got to this passage about Lydia Robinson, who's not named, but described as this wretched and profligate woman who ruined Branwell's life, seduced him. Mrs. Gaskell says that in this case, the man was the victim. She really does blame Lydia Robinson for Branwell's alcoholism, his opium addiction, and his death. I was so struck that somebody had to have told her side of the story that I put the bookmark in the book and I turned to Google and I frantically searched to see if anyone had written this novel. And when I found that they hadn't, it was the closest I've ever come to love at first sight. It was extremely obsessive. It took my mind off those final last queries and full manuscript requests that were out there because I just poured everything I had into researching and writing this book. And because it was about the Brontes, who are so well-known, I, I did have to do a full year of research before I wrote. But when I finally did start writing a year later, I wrote it incredibly quickly for me. I, I wrote it in under six months, which with a full-time job that's pretty demanding and not being able to write every day was, was very fast. And it was all driven by this idea that if I didn't write this book, someone else was going to because I felt so in love with the idea. Yeah. It's, it's so clear. Your passion really comes through. And so you could have written this a whole lot of different ways. And I'm intrigued that you chose really to enter her personality by writing in the first person. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to that and why that seemed to be the right choice for you? Yeah, so that choice was always there from the beginning. From the very first second that I had the idea, I knew it would be this way. But you're right that you could write it a lot of different ways. Um, you could write it from a lot of different perspectives, from Branwell's, for instance, um, or from Anne Bronte's, because she's the governess in the same house. You could also make one of the daughters in the household, probably the younger Lydia, um, named after her mother, the kind of traditional historical fiction heroine of the piece. Um, she has a pretty dramatic arc herself. She makes gutsy decisions, which is true of a lot of those young historical heroines that are in vogue right now. But really what I was trying to do with Bronte's Mistress 
was it's very much my response to the writings of Charlotte Bronte and, and in particular Jane Eyre, that first novel that I read of hers. Jane Eyre is also in the first person reader. I married him. It's one of the most famous lines of the book. And Jane Eyre is often held up as this proto-feminist. And it's true that she says some amazing lines and she advocates um, quite strongly for women having passions and hearts and souls as much as men. And it's amazing stuff. But at the same time, Jane Eyre is extremely judgmental of other women. She hates women just for being more attractive than her, wealthier than her, older than her, more assured. And there's, it was really interesting to me that there's this streak of misogyny almost within this character that's held up as the feminist ideal. And so the more I thought about it, the more I felt that so many Charlotte Bronte heroines are poor, plain, young, and virginal. And Lydia Robinson is the opposite of all of that. She's pretty wealthy, especially compared to the Brontes. She was, by all accounts, pretty beautiful. She's in her 40s um, when the novel starts. Um, so she isn't this slip of a girl at 20 going out to be governess. And she's clearly sexually experienced, as in she has given birth to five children, even if she's only slept with one man up to this point. And so this was the sort of heroine I wanted to see in historical fiction. And I really wanted to show how in this very patriarchal society, even someone with the advantages that Lydia Robinson has still really gets the you know, wrong end of the stick. And it's my response to how I think Charlotte Bronte should have more empathy for women in different situations. And perhaps that the Bronte is one of the reasons they've been held up as such an ideal is because they're like the perfect feminists, um, because they die young, um, because they're not overly attractive, because they lived these very not materialistic lives. And could Lydia be vain? Could she be petty? Yes, but that doesn't mean that she's any less worthy of being an agent in her own life. Going back to your issue that, that she was in her 40s at the beginning of the novel, did you get any pushback about that? Because, of course, historical novel, there's a tendency to have these young, beautiful heroines in historical novels. As you said, the younger Lydia could have been the voice through which that story was told. But did you get any pushback about that? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about that is that women in their 40s and 50s are probably among the biggest buyers of historical fiction. A lot of people have been very pleased um, to see a heroine that's not 17. I'm not in my 40s, I'm 29. But even I, like an 18-year-old... baby! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. An 18-year-old is a child, right? Like, so when I read a novel that has an 18-year-old they often seem to me to be too sophisticated for how 18-year-olds really think. Um, If you want to see how 18-year-olds think, go and look on TikTok. Um, They're not necessarily the best fodder for a really interesting intellectual novel, I think. So no on that side. I will say the pushback I got early at one historical fiction writing group or course that I did was from me writing a character who was a mother when I'm not personally a mother which was very interesting and has been something that has been really focused on in the book because Lydia's parenting choices certainly are not those of a 21st century 20 or 30 something in Brooklyn. But at the same time, I don't think she's a terrible mother. And by the standards of her day, I think she's pretty involved. Um, We never see her use corporal punishment on her children. She's very concerned about their futures. And and that leads her to give them some tough love. 
she tells the girls they need to be attractive, they need to make sure they stay thin um, because they need to get this husband. But it comes from a place of her really looking out to protect them based on what she's learned about the unfairness of the world. So that's been the biggest pushback I've got throughout is people really judging her as a mother. And I've heard about mom judgment before, but it's been very strange how through the proxy of Lydia, I feel like I've experienced some of that without even having become a parent, just how extremely judgmental that other people, especially women can be uh, about the choices that women make when it comes to rearing their children. Yes, that is absolutely true. And it's a very sore subject, I imagine too, because I, I honestly, I was like, wow, she's sometimes she's not very likable. And this was really interesting to me, too, because although you wrote her in such a way that her, you really could feel her emotional ups and downs and how her conflicted feelings about her husband and what she really wanted from him that he wouldn't give her and, and how how she sort of, she didn't really take it out on her children, but somehow it was reflected onto them. And I think that's a very true kind of parental thing, honestly. And I think maybe some of that discomfort comes from people recognizing it in themselves, possibly. Yes. And it's interesting you bring up her husband there because, you know, I've spent years writing this book, living with this book, but this only really crystallized to me in the last week when I got a question about her parenting choices again which is that nobody has ever asked me about her husband's parenting choices, ever. Everybody goes on about her failings as a mother, not his failings as a father. We only really see him interact with the children once, and it's to tell them to be quiet because he's having a nap. He he never gets involved in the slightest way, and yet Lydia is the one who's raked over the coals. I do think as well that when you're writing in the first person, and I like to get very close, as you say, into that perspective, people in their own heads are going to be meaner than they are out loud. So it just didn't ring true to me that someone would, you know, constantly be kind to those around them when they were thinking privately. And a great example of that is there's a scene in Scarborough at the theater where Anne Bronte, as I mentioned, her daughter's governess, faints. And Lydia has this very unkind thought where she thinks, oh no, if Anne Bronte is ill, I'll have to get another governess. Yes. Which, you know, may strike us as not displaying a lot of empathy or sympathy for this woman who's just collapsed in a coughing fit. However, I would challenge a lot of people that have they ever had their nanny or their babysitter cancel because they're ill and has their first thought been about the inconvenience to them versus whether they well and whether there's been any resentment, even if it's for a split second. So I do think this is something with the first person that when I read a first person character who's just delightful all of the time in their interior monologue, it doesn't strike me as very realistic. And I guess at my worst moments, I think, oh, does that mean I'm meaner than the average person or that I have more bad thoughts? But I I do think that it's true that all of us have those moments where we can be less than kind. And I think Lydia, a lot of the times, does revise and doesn't quite say what she says internally out loud. Yes. And she she redeems herself continually in, in many ways. And the difficult situation she's in and her her desperate need for love. And and I can really understand it because she's the age she is. She's losing her look. She's she's trying to hang on to her desirability as a woman. 
and and having been essentially rejected by her husband, she goes into this not very smart kind of relationship. And, yes, it's uh, very reckless. And I, I think it's just important to underline that divorce is not an option for her, right? Like, I think that's the critique that a lot of people who commit adultery would be given now is if you're unhappy, why don't you just leave? But for Lydia, that's utterly impossible. She doesn't have access to divorce. She has none of her own money. She has no right to vote, no property rights. And if her husband says, we're not going to have sex anymore, you're too old. What else is she to do? And 43 is definitely not old. She's 43 to 48 in the course of the novel. And if she was living today, she'd just go to a hair salon. But this poor woman can't even dye her hair. And so the aging process is so much more traumatic when every day she's looking in the mirror, studying those grays and thinking, I'm never going to be desirable again. And I've outlived my usefulness because the only thing I needed to do was produce children. Right. And then, of course, she has this tragedy, which we know from the very beginning of having which, which really makes it much more poignant of having had her youngest child die at the age of two, I think it was. Yeah, that's right. And that, to me, I can really see the conflict that built up in her. It was very real. It was really, you, you did it beautifully. Thank you. The focus on an invisible middle-aged, middle-aged woman, I, I loved. And, but your, your point about the fact that women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, are the main readers of historical fiction. However, I think there's sometimes part of that is not to see themselves reflected as they are now, but to look back to that time and, you know, kind of escape that and relive it. So that was sort of why I was wondering whether you had any pushback. And I I really, she was so believable to me as a character. And the other thing that that the style reminded me of a lot, every once in a while, I read something like Anne Radcliffe. And and that very almost high flown, very, very over the top, it really takes a while, you have to sit, you have to kind of sit with it and get into that, into that space in order to read it. And at the very beginning of your novel, I thought, oh, this is one of those. (laughs) Because you immediately thrust us in with this this kind of overwroughtness of her. So were there, were there, what were your stylistic influences aside from, uh, you know, the, the obvious ones, the Brontes? Yeah, I, I think the overwrought and gothic nature of it is something I wanted to play with. I've always been really interested in writing of different tonal registers being side by side. So my very favorite book is not 19th century at all, which always surprises people. It's a small work of poetic prose by a Canadian writer called Elizabeth Smart, which is oh my gosh, an amazing title by yeah. Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept. And that is extremely flowery and overwrought. But for me, the genius of that book is that there are these moments where the narrator who's unnamed is speaking in this highfalutin language 
but she interacts with other characters who are not, and they're not dealing on that same emotional register. So there's a man at a diner near Grand Central Station. There are some police officers who question her in a very mundane and prosaic way while she is quoting from the Song of Solomon at them. And I find a real humor in that, which I think if you look at the reviews, you'll see a lot of people love this book and a lot of people hate it for being too flowery. And I think they miss that humor that the juxtaposition provides. And so Lydia, in some ways, is this gothic heroine. She feels everything so extremely. She talks about being in tune with nature's orchestra. She acts like she feels feelings more than the average human being, which is something that she feels unites her with Branwell. However, she is also deeply pragmatic. She snaps out of it when she needs to. And there are these moments where the lines she says would never be uttered by an Anne Radcliffe heroine. Sometimes they push at the bounds of plausibility in terms of would a Victorian woman say this? My favorite example is when she snaps at her daughter and says, loving your husband is overrated. Yes. But it's that juxtaposition between her highly romantic prose one second versus this kind of witty, sharp humor at the next. And there are other moments in the book where I do that same juxtaposition, not so much through the language, but through what happens. So there's a scene where she goes outside in her nightgown. She's going to meet Branwell for this rendezvous. She arrives at the stable and... And it's a scene from a comedy where when she arrives at the stable, there's someone else there. Our expectations are reversed and she needs to start playing this um, uptight matron again when two seconds before she was imagining having sex with this 25-year-old in the hay. So for me, that's what I was playing with here. And I had a lot of conversations with my agent about how can we play with gothic tropes even more. One thing that happened, for instance, is when I went on my research trip, I had crazily good weather in Yorkshire so it was sunny my whole trip but that bled into the novel when there wasn't enough rain so I had to go back through and do an edit where I added some of those more gothic weather elements to play on that other elements we added just more references to the Bronte's books as well so there are some fun references in here to Jane Eyre to Wuthering Heights Often a little bit of humor in there, I would say as well. Um, The passage most directly lifted from Wuthering Heights, I have Branwell use some of those lines in a scene with Lydia where he talks about two souls that are made of the same material and when those souls meet. But then he says, Emily and I have talked of it often. And for me, this is a joke because there were such crazy rumors in the 20th century where people said, did Branwell Bronte write Wuthering Heights because no woman could have written such an amazing novel? Clearly ridiculous. It's been debunked in every way you could think of. But by having him paraphrase Emily not so well versus the other way around, that's me kind of playing a joke on that textual history. So all of those were definitely references that, of course, the works of the Bronte sisters were so important here. I did read, reread Agnes Gray before I started writing the book, but I didn't look at it during because Agnes Gray is extremely autobiographical. So the Murray family within that book is said to be based on the Robinsons. And I didn't want to rehash exactly the same scenes or exactly the same conversations. So I really relied on my memory of that book. And what's interesting, I recently reread it because I appeared on the Bonnets at Dawn podcast and they were doing an Agnes Gray read-along, is there are some moments of Agnes Gray that I think I echo 
in Bronte's Mistress, but it was almost subconsciously where it was just the memory of it was there in the background versus me saying, okay, this is this scene and now we're going to see it from the mother of the household's point of view. Yeah, a couple, couple more questions. Actually, something rather humorous. It, I did get a chuckle about the fact that her name is Mrs. Robinson. Yes. Um, the, so, graduate. the graduate. The yeah. graduate. <laughs> I know, and I'm actually looking into this this weekend for an article I'm writing, but some people do believe this is a literary in-joke of Charles Webb, who actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago, which was really sad to hear. He never really spoke about this publicly, though he was asked several times, but Benjamin Braddock, the young man in um, The Graduate, has the same initials as Branwell Bronte. It's also a Mrs. Robinson. So I think there's good reason to suspect that he was pulling on this as a, a reference. But of course, as soon as you say to people, she's a Mrs. Robinson, they, they get immediately what you're talking about, um, which has been a real gift um, when trying to sell this book. But for me, I, I see her as Lydia because I have this close first person. I'm in her head. And of course, Robinson is her married name. At some right. points, Branwell yeah. refers to her as Lydia Gisborne, her um, maiden name, and that's true. He did write a poem where he gave it that title after being dismissed. So he didn't want to think about her as a Mrs. Robinson at all. The other thing I was that threw me and struck me a lot is the man who ends up being her second husband. Yes. Wow. There were a lot of interesting surprises there. You think one thing and then it twists around and then it's like, do I want to like this guy or do I want to hate him? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the way I worked on this book when I was researching it, I, I mentioned I spent a full year researching before I began writing. I made a spreadsheet. It sounds very boring, but I made a spreadsheet of all known events in the Brontes' lives and in Lydia Robinson's life. And then I looked back at the spreadsheet and thought, well, where should the beginning and end of the book be? And I guess my initial idea had been to focus on the affair. So probably end the book, maybe when Branwell left the house, maybe when the affair was over, or potentially with the Gaskell biography and with a lawsuit, right? That was another idea I was throwing around, even though that was years later. I thought I could have that as a framing device. But what I was very surprised by was how interesting Lydia Robinson's life is after the Brontes leave the scene. So much of what's been written in Bronte biographies or in academic articles about Lydia Robinson has only focused on 1843 to 1845, those years when Branwell was in the house. But as you say, after that, after he leaves, more stuff happens. She's widowed and she gets this second chance and it was a real gift as a novelist to think, how can I play around with this? Then you find out that her second husband, you know, was married to her first cousin mm. and that she's in the house where while the first cousin is dying and marries him extremely shortly afterwards, she's actually married from the house of his mother-in-law, who's her aunt, i.e. the dead woman's mother. It's mm. so bizarre. It's so Victorian and it was so, so Victorian. I love it. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I just had to do it. And I also thought that beyond the romantic plot here, it's very interesting to see Lydia Robinson, who very much prides herself on being the mistress of the house. 
um, being unmoored and not the mistress of her own home anymore. Before she ends up with Sir Edward at his home, she goes to her older sister. And there she says she finds herself unwomaned by the way that her sister Mary treats her. She's just a guest. She's not in control. Her sister is managing everything. She doesn't even feel like the mother to her own daughters anymore as her sister takes the reins. And I just wanted to see what would happen to this sort of personality in this situation. Earlier, she says to Anne Bronte that she's pitiable because her two choices are to become a drudge or a burden. A drudge being someone who's working for their living, (laughs) a burden being someone who's living off others. And Lydia experiences being a burden. She doesn't like it. She's not going to become a drudge. And so a man is her way out. And I'm not going to spoil exactly how she manages to nap her man or what happens next and how much we should like him. But it was very interesting for me to see her play that out. And we've seen how her first marriage ended. So can she make better choices? Can she come to a place where she's communicating better with her next husband? Or is she really destined to repeat the same mistakes? (laughs) The other thing that we have with Sir Edward is a scene that's very important for me in the novel is where she finds herself the only woman in the room at a dinner party. And then she is excluded and asked to leave so the men can drink after dinner and she ends up eavesdropping at the door. And the men in the novel are very much the unknowable other a lot of the time. We don't get an insight into their private worlds when they're at the Freemasons Lodge together or drinking alone without the women. But here she she overhears a portion of what goes on and the way that she herself is spoken about. And for me, this is a really heartbreaking moment for Lydia where she realizes that even if she achieves everything that she's been raised for and becomes a titled woman, extremely wealthy, has new clothes, still looks beautiful, she's still going to be infantilized and looked down on and that she doesn't have anything to contribute to some of the conversations that the men talk about. She speaks about how she knows nothing about politics or the reform law. She has nothing to add because she's been raised just to be ornamental. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I really felt that you caught that particular atmosphere really well. Things happen the way they do for her because, in part, she has no other outlet for her passions. She has nothing else. She, she's, she's cast as this mother, and yet her kids are taken care of by someone else. Her husband doesn't, is turned his back on her. What I thought was really interesting was the role of her piano playing in it as well. I mean, as a pianist, <laughs> I, always, I always, my ears always prick up at things like that, but that, that she couldn't play the piano, that, that that was a big thing at the beginning for her husband, and then it sort of went away because either he, it was, he was too loud, it was whatever it was, and then there's a moment when she sits down and plays the piano again, and I just went, oh, you know, because she was, that was something she was able to do. Was that a yeah. conscious thing on you, or is it just me adding something no, of my I, own? I'm glad to hear that it's resonating with someone who's a pianist. I, I'm not a good pianist at all, um, but I did want Lydia to have her own passion and her own talents, even if she doesn't have any 
artistic aspirations because she's never thought that she could have any. And so women were really raised to have accomplishments, right? And singing and piano playing is one of those, but again, it's ornamental. So it's often after dinner when the men rejoin the ladies. And so, yes, there are a couple of references to her being told to keep it down because she's pouring her Gothic romantic soul into her piano playing when everybody else just wants some elevator music. And again, I, I do think there's a humor in that. And there is this moment where she sent her children away temporarily. Her first husband is dead and she just sits down and plays for her. She sings the songs not to impress other people, but because they remind her of being young, being a child. She's still actually wet and muddy from a walk outside. So she's not worrying about how she looks, which is extremely rare for Lydia. And it's one of her few moments of joy. Branwell really recognizes her love of music. So a couple of times very early, he compliments her playing and singing and tells her that he loves listening to her. He tells her that she's an artist. He says, you two are a poet um, based on seeing her talent um, for music. And I think that's one of the keys to her attraction to Branwell isn't just that he's young, isn't just that he has this romantic fiery temperament to match his red hair but he listens to her. He listens to her when she talks and he listens to her music and he takes it extremely seriously. And no one has ever taken her seriously before. And with Sir Edward, the first night she's at his home, she plays the piano and he doesn't give her that attention. And she excuses him mentally. She says, oh, well, you know, he's the host. He has to talk to the other guests. I know really that he was listening to me but it, it just feels like a poor attempt at convincing herself. And there's a moment with Sir Edward where she says that she's going to be a mannequin always and posing in this tableau for him, tableau for him in the castle. He has a very grand house. And I guess this really comes from what well, my master's degree was all about. I, I wrote a dissertation on theatricality and domesticity in the Victorian sensation novel, which is two long, very long words, but essentially my argument was that middle-class wives had to be very, very good actresses <laughs> because they are putting on a show the whole time for the men in their lives and playing this role of the angel in the house. And what's so subversive about sensation fiction isn't that this evil actress infiltrates the middle-class home, but that every middle-class home already has this actress and who knows what else she's capable of. She could be deceitful. She could even be murderous. Being a good actress makes you a good prostitute too. And these are the kind of parallels that are pulled at the time. And I think we still have that strain in modern domestic suspense. So especially Gone Girl, isn't that part of Gone Girl that Amy looks like such a perfect wife and a perfect woman? But the fact that she's able to keep up this facade with those closest to her shows that she could be capable of being a total psychopath because of what we force women to be. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's all so interesting. And now, and the last thing I want to talk about is, of course, Bronte is a kind of a catchphrase. Did you have any, any back and forth about what the title should be? Yes. So when I was writing it, it was always just called Lydia. When I write first person, that's really what I think. And you spoke earlier about this, that really inhabiting that voice is key to the book's success. So it was just Lydia, work in progress, off we go. But when I came to want to query agents, I knew that the Brontes was probably the hook in. I wanted an agent who loved the Brontes and who sat up a little straighter when they saw in their inbox that somebody had a Bronte book. 
So I threw around a lot of titles. I had a whole list of them. I knew I didn't want to give Branwell equal billing. So it was never going to be Branwell and Lydia or Mr. Bronte and Mrs. Robinson because he's an important character in the book, but he is not a protagonist of the book in the same way that Lydia is. And it's not really about him. He's incidental. He's just her drug of choice for this reckless period that she has in her life. So Bronte's mistress was the one I settled on because of a couple of reasons. One, I liked that there was the sexual innuendo of mistress, but you also have mistresses in mistress of the household, which is so important to her, and the female equivalent of master, because she takes on an increasingly dominant role in their relationship, including sexually, where the first time they have sex, it's not that enjoyable for her. And after that, she teaches him what it is she likes and makes sure that their encounters are pretty satisfying for her. The other reason I like this title is because it didn't specify which Bronte. So not everybody even knows about Branwell, but the Bronte name has some cachet. So I think if you've only ever read Wolverine Heights and Jane Eyre, you still might be attracted to pick up the book, check the back cover and see, oh, which Bronte is this about? And if you've never heard about Branwell or Anne before, be intrigued to read a little bit more. So that was my rationale. Then I signed with my agent and went through a couple of rounds of edits with her. And we had this conversation all over again. And she asked me the question, have you thought about just calling it Lydia? Like we could just call it Lydia and have a subtitle, like a story of the Brontes or a Bronte novel or, or something that speaks to this. I did have concerns about the name Lydia, especially because it does for me conjure Lydia Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, which is something that I deliberately channeled with the younger Lydia because of some of the choices she makes, which are pretty Lydia Bennett-like, but I just, I don't think suits my main Lydia very well in terms of conveying what the novel is about. I also didn't know if it was distinctive enough from a purely marketing and search engine point of view. And we, of course, had all of the same concerns I'd had with getting an agent about wanting the right editor, where we thought the Bronte connection was a big selling point and we wanted to foreground it. So ultimately, when we went on submission, we kept the title Bronte's Mistress. And then my very first call with my editor when we sold the book, I think even before we sold the book, we had a a call before they put in the offer. And the question I got from her was, have you ever considered just calling it Lydia? And I laughed because I was playing (laughs) out the same thing. And so when we sold it, it was still very much up in the air, whether it was going to end up as Lydia or end up as Bronte's mistress. And ultimately, we landed in the same place for the same reasons that I've been talking about. And I'm, I'm pleased with the title. I think it suits the book well. But that back and forth that we had time and time again, I, I think displays what's at the heart of this book is that, yes, there's a Bronte hook. Yes, it's very much in dialogue with the works of the Bronte sisters, who I love, even if Lydia does not. But it is also a story about Lydia Robinson at its heart. She is the center of this story and hers is the story I wanted to tell. I didn't want to just use her as a way to get to the famous Bronte siblings. And I hope that comes across in the way that it's written. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, while we're on the subject, let's talk about sex. Let's <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Because what's really interesting, what was one of the many things that I really loved about this was how you gave her sexual appetites, how she was empowered to feel pleasure. And, and it's not a very Victorian kind of concept. And yet, of course, women were, were experiencing this, many of them. So what made you decide, was it something in your research about her? Obviously, she's, if she's 
fooling around with Branwell, but that can take a lot of different forms. So what, what made you decide to give her that? Well, one, as you mentioned, the affair with Branwell, getting in any way involved um, with a younger man when you're a married woman in the 19th century is incredibly risky. <laughs> and so there needs to be something or many things that are really driving you to that. Uh, and I think that when people are driven by lust, they're not always at their wisest. So I, I think it's a good motivator in terms of um, dramatic conflict and potential. So that's the first thing. Second, I'd say that it was ridiculous for me if I was going to write a book about an affair with mistress in the title to just fade to black and not have any sex scenes because clearly it's such an important part of why she would enter and sustain and continue this affair. So it was something I need to deal with. They're not graphic in terms of terminology, but they definitely don't just fade to black after some kissing, which I do think some historical fiction readers are less used to because maybe they, they enjoy historical fiction because some writers of the genre kind of stick to the rules of the time period in terms of how suggestive or not their prose is. So I certainly expect that pushback. I, I've already got some. There'll probably be a bit more, though the popularity of books like Outlander shows you there's also an extremely healthy appetite for women readers of historical fiction for a lot of graphic sex scenes. Yes, healthy appetite is the word. <laughs> yes, and so the other part of this is that I thought Victorian women their sexualities had to be so reactive because they had to protect their virtues when they were young. And then when they're married, as I've referenced several times, they don't share a room. So she has to wait in the dark every night to see if her husband's going to come and visit her. So she doesn't get to make any of her own choices. And of course, because her primary role is to produce a child, sex is initially for the purpose of procreation. And she does talk a little bit of the trauma of having three girls in a row and not the son and her disappointment with each successive daughter, but also her guilt at this disappointment. So when you're having sex in order to conceive, I think it's a, a lot less fun. <laughs> and so I really wanted to get her at this moment where sex is now for her for the first time and she has agency for the first time and i mentioned the humor of when she's stumbling around in the dark in her nightgown but this is the first time that she's gone seeking sex versus having just to wait for men to come and say this is what's going to happen now and so i thought what an amazing moment and i know there's a lot of wedding nights and historical fiction where we see young heroines lose their virginity but I thought this is almost like a second virginity for Lydia, that this is only the second man she's ever slept with. And it's the first time that she's doing it just because she wants to. And what an interesting psychological moment to capture her at. I also think, mentioned how Lydia, like, she's not getting any emotional or physical satisfaction and she's not being touched. And something I hear from a lot of mothers today is that they feel too touched. So this idea that you have children clinging to you all the time, sticky fingers, maybe there's a few years of your life where you're nearly constantly pregnant or postpartum, your husband wants to maintain a physical relationship too, and all they want is just a bath and a weekend alone and no one to touch them. But Lydia's experience is extremely diff different. One, because women of her class and status often didn't breastfeed. And she mentions that she doesn't breastfeed any of her children except for Georgina, her mm. youngest who dies, where she makes that choice. 
Her husband is not touching her. Her teenage children are being typical teenagers. So they're withdrawing from her and withdrawing that touch. And the only person at the start of the novel who's really touching her is her maid, Anne Marshall. And that maid relationship was extremely important to me. I do think that it has sexual undertones and overtones, which were extremely deliberate because there's an intimacy here between women and their maid servants, which can be really hard for us to fathom today. Marshall dresses Lydia every morning. She undresses her. She bathes her. She washes her hair. She washes her clothes. She's probably the one cleaning her menstrual rags. She's definitely the one taking out the chamber pot. So they just know each other in in an extremely intimate way. And we do see these moments of physical connection. For instance, there's a moment where Lydia slaps away her maid's hand, but then she grabs it and kisses it. And there's this repulsion at her hand being a red working woman's hand, as well as a real pleasure in being touched. She also talks about being held against Marshall's bony chest. She's very aware of her physicality. And I think we could read a sexual subtext into their relationship. Yes. But what's really interesting to me is that she has all of this stuff need for Marshall, but then... And Marshall has all her intimate secrets and all her everything, but she really knows nothing about Marshall. Yes. And I think that's a pattern. Like, obviously there's a power differential here that plays into that. Like Marshall has to play the role of the dutiful servant, not speak too much, just do what she's told. But Leah and all her relationships does struggle to see other people as having the same sort of interiority as her. And there's a moment where she says, oh, wow, Branwell has this complex interior life just like me. And I think we could respond, well, everybody does, including Marshall, (laughs) like the coachman who you just treat like he's a prop, your children who you can at times be a little bit harsh to. Uh, And so, again, there's a humor in that for me that she is so surprised that other people have other things going on. And of course, with Marshall in particular, I do think that same-sex desire is just not really on Lydia's radar, and it's not something that she wants to admit to herself, even if it's something that she's feeling. And of course, we then have the character of Dr. Crosby, the family doctor. Yeah, Yes, he's one of my favorites too, Mm -hmm. who's open with her about his same-sex desire, and her response is, okay, he told me this shameful secret once, but he shouldn't mention it again. So she doesn't want to engage even when he's made himself extremely vulnerable and really responded to her coming to him, you know, at a real difficult moment um, by trying to advance their friendship and tell her something about him. She's not interested. Um, She just wants the intimacy to go one way. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, as any listener can hear, this is a wonderfully layered, rich story that you've told and it's staying with me and I'm thinking about it a lot and I really and, and I really thank you for letting me read it it's it's coming out when August 4th August 4th that's Tuesday yeah, um, just a gosh. few more days um, yes, yeah, yes. I'm very excited <laughs> yes I, I'm I'm going to be putting this up before then just before then so oh, wow. yes yeah now is there anything else that you'd like to say about your book before we finish here Yeah, I think one thing we didn't talk about too much, though, forgive me, because everything is melding um, over these few days in the weeks before launch, but is just the importance of Charlotte Bronte in particular. I, I know I talked about her importance to me in designing this novel, but Lydia really thinks about Charlotte a lot, even though they don't meet until very late in the book. And Charlotte Bronte, as I have her, is really that counterpoint 
Tilidia. They're similar in some ways, but they make very different choices. Minor similarity that I gave them, which is based on evidence on Charlotte's side, but no evidence on Lydia's side, is I have them both being nearsighted and, and so mm. needing eyeglasses. And Charlotte wears them, even though we know she was very, very self-conscious about them, whereas Lydia refuses to wear them because she's so vain, so spends a lot of the novel squinting, which I think we could take as a thematic for a lot of what's going on in terms of her misreading <laughs> of other people. Yeah. And so Lydia hears from Branwell that Charlotte is the cleverest woman he knows, he says very early. And Lydia has an extremely strong reaction to that. She says, was I clever? I'd never really considered it. And she mentions that people have called her beautiful and charming and praised her for being good, but she's never really wondered about being clever. And this idea of, am I clever? Do I have something worthwhile that people should say really eats at her through the book? And at some point she is more obsessed with Charlotte than she is with Branwell. She mentions trying to bring the conversation around to Charlotte. And later she hears from Branwell that Charlotte herself is, in love with someone she can't have. So she's in love with her married um, schoolmaster in Brussels. And so Lydia starts to think maybe we're even more similar and maybe Charlotte is someone who could understand me when we know, of course, that Charlotte hates Lydia. And, and so the dedication to my novel was um, for the women who didn't write their novels. And Lydia, for me, really represents a whole host of women who were not the exceptions that the Bronte sisters were. The Bronte sisters, I think it's ironic that they've come to be so much a part of our idea of the Victorian period in the 19th century, when in some ways they were so exceptional for the Victorian period in the 19th century. And there were countless women who didn't believe that they could be artists, that didn't believe that they could be clever, or that they had anything important to say. And I think we could feel frustrated at Lydia. There's a moment when she says to her second daughter, like, what would you have me do? Change the world and my place within it? And a lot of modern readers, that's what they want their historical heroines to do, to go out there, march on the streets, demand the right to vote, say they don't need a husband. But that's not the way societies operate. And most people are not revolutionaries. And I don't think that makes them any less worthy of our attention and our compassion. So that's really yes. what drove me to write the novel. And uh, yeah, I hope that as people read, Charlotte is a lurking presence throughout, not just a character who gets one important scene at the end. Yes. And of course, those, those women who haven't written their novels, who aren't exceptional, they need someone as skillful as you to actually tell their stories and make them, make them meaningful to modern readers. So thank you yes. for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, maybe. I, I just wish that, you know, if anyone listening is feeling, well, I haven't written my novel yet, like you can, and yeah. your voice is worth hearing, and it's worth giving yourself the time and the solitude to do that, because I, I think that's where a lot of people struggle, or they think that it's self-centered or, or selfish, but I feel like you'll be enhancing the world by having your voice put down on paper. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. What I was referring to was the people who can't anymore because they're dead. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll, I'll stick to the dead people. It sounds yeah, good to me. Right. Yes, that's right. Anyway, well, thank you so much for this. This has been a great conversation, and I'm really excited for your book launch, and I hope it, I hope it just goes crazy and you do really well. 
And, Thank you. Um, I hope and- you can tune in to the launch event on Monday night. So we'll be on Zoom and Facebook Live. I'll send you the details. But- oh, please do. I would love to see that. And Yeah, I'll be in conversation in with Joy yeah. Goodwin, who's the American representative of the Bronte Society. So we're going to geek out over the Bronte stuff and get pretty deep into the research. So I'm excited for it. Oh, fun. That, that'll be absolutely great. Well, so people could, will be able to get this book anywhere on August 4th. Yeah. Um, people will be able to get the book hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from August 4th. My website is Austin. That's F-I-N-O-L-A, Austin, like Texas, not like Jane, dot com. And you can also find me across social media on Instagram. I'm at Fanula underscore Austin. On Facebook, I'm Fanula Austin Writer. And on Twitter, you can find me at S Victorianist, uh, which is a reference to my blog, The Secret Victorianist. Thank you. And I hope everybody will follow you and, and enjoy the book. Thank you. Great talking to you. Mm-hmm.